Welcome to another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dan. Today, I'm joined once again by Jordan Morgan. Jordan, thank you so much for coming back on, especially in this series. Yeah, absolutely. It was, I was excited to get the invite. It'll, it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. So you're episode number four. I figured out of all the returning guests that I should have on when it comes to indie apps, I figured you, since you're writing a whole book series on this and you have some experience that other indie devs don't have. Um, before we get started, I'll let you introduce yourself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm Jordan Morgan. I've uh, been dabbling in the indie scene for for quite a while. Been kind of doing everything in that little indie spectrum or umbrella, whatever you want to call it, uh, in terms of writing. I love writing on my blog, uh, shipping apps, and uh, doing now content work with uh, the book series. So yeah, been in iOS, I guess, since uh, 2011 now. So a little bit. It seems like a banner year for a lot of people because that was me too. It was like 2011. I built my first iPad app for an employer. So yeah, something about that. That's that's just when, that's just when the tipping point, right? Well, it's right when uh, Arc got started. So you didn't have to deal with memory management around that time. So I remember that was like a big thing for me. I was like, oh, now it's now it's a lot easier. I think I think I did. I did have to do some retain release. Unfortunately, Oof. I was caught right before that. God bless you. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Going from garbage collection to that. How did you become an indie developer? Yeah, well, I think it's like what a lot of people do. You just have ideas that you want to explore and see them out in the world. And uh, I think once you ship that first app, there's almost no no turning back, whether it's a success or just an abysmal failure, uh, which, which my first several... <laughs> You know, were but you know, I just kind of got hooked on that uh, dream build release cycle and just kind of been doing it ever since. But yeah, I mean, the the scene has grown so much since then. I think for the better. There's a lot of people doing it now in all sorts of spectrums, whether it's part time, full time, somewhere in between. But I think the shortest answer is it's just something I really enjoy, and I don't ever see myself getting tired of it up to this point. So I just keep doing it. So you did you start off as an indie developer, or were you employed and then you got into indie development? Yeah, it was uh, all it's always been through employers. It's been like the side hustle thing. And, you know, it's such an interesting topic because it always kind of comes down to when people talk to me about like time management, you know, like having having a job, indie apps, uh, you know, being married, having kids, all these things. But yeah, so I've always done it on as a side thing with uh, uh, an employer where I work today. I work at uh, Buffer and uh, do iOS for them. It's a very side project friendly place. So it's uh, worked out really well. Nice, nice. How do you. I guess, how have you matured and what ideas you pick when you want to build an app? Uh, that's such a great one. Um, so I know we'll get to it later, but that's actually something I just wrote about in the book series I'm doing. And it was in the design portion, because before you de- design something, you have to know like what it is you're designing. Right. So this right. is something I really struggled with. Like I would I think there's like two parts. Like you have this idea, you have this big, like grand uh, ambitions on what this app can be. And it always looks clean and easy and defined in your head. But then when like you open Xcode or you open the pen and paper to like define it, that's when you get down to like the nitty gritty and really trying to uh, cut some stuff away or actually figuring out what's going on or what the app's going to be. So for me, I think when it comes down to what I would build now, it's kind of shifted over the years. In the beginning, it was about enjoyment, right? Like I'm going to have fun doing this. And that's the only reasoning I'm doing. That's the only reason, right? It doesn't matter if it sucks, if it fails, no one buys it. I'm going to have fun. Now I've kind of strayed way far away from that, actually. Like I still want to build things I enjoy. That's a proponent. But I also look critically at the market and the opportunities for it to, uh, you know, monetize and make money. 
and I kind of alluded to this in the time management thing. Like, I feel like at this point in my life, I can't justify working on apps unless it brings like a monetary benefit to me and my family. Uh, so for example, with, uh, any profits that I make from apps or now the book series, like, you know, that's where it goes to, it goes to like kids, college funds to, you know, family vacations, you know, all, all these things. So I kind of justify it that way. Like if I'm going to spend time doing this, I'm going to take it seriously. I'm going to enjoy what I build, but I'm going to make sure that it has a chance to succeed. So I come up with an idea. I look at the market. I look at competitors. I see what the opportunity and the landscape looks like. I look at the time investment and seeing how hard or not hard it'll be. And then I go from there. And I actually just had a tweet about this earlier. I set up like this little table of notes evaluating the next app idea I want to do from three of them. And like those were some of the columns, right? It was like enjoyment, marketability, monetization aspects, you know, and, and then I just weighted all those scores and went with the one that was the highest. So not exactly a scientific route, but you know, it was, it was good enough for me, but I do think a lot about that. Yeah, that's, that makes a lot of sense. Hey folks, once again, I want to thank our sponsor for today's episode, Revenue Cat. Revenue Cat is the way for app developers to integrate in-app purchases in your app. If you ever looked at the API when it comes to StoreKit, you know how complex it can be checking receipts, certificates, and then using that data to actually get a hold of your customers and, you know, be able to keep them informed of what's going on and deals that are coming up. So you know how important it is to have a tool like Revenue Cat in your toolbox. Revenue Cat makes it easy for folks like you, app developers, to build, analyze, and grow in-app purchases. Not only for iOS, but also Android and web, if you're on those platforms as well. There's no server code required. They do it all for you. So for you, it's just a few lines of code to get in-app purchase infrastructure, analytics, and integrations without managing servers. They're reasonable prices, and they are friendly for app developers like yourself. If you don't know how complex StoreKit can be, I definitely recommend checking out the episode I did a few months ago with Andy Bodeo, where we talk about the complexities of StoreKit and keeping track of your customers and receipts. So definitely check that link in the show notes below. Also, they have some really great tutorials out there and really great videos on their YouTube channel. So I'll post a link to that as well, talking about how important and powerful their dashboard is so you can constantly track your customers and know what's going on. So after you listen to this episode, go into the link in the show notes below and sign up for Revenue Cat. Seriously, it's totally easy to get started and they're very reasonably priced. It's totally worth your time to check it out. And I want to thank Revenue Cat for sponsoring today's episode. So when it comes to like researching the market, I assume you use like ASO type tools, like sponsor app figures or something like that to just look at like competitors in that market and to see if it's like even worthwhile, I guess. It's a, it's a part in the tool chain. Sure. I usually go high level in the beginning. So for example, the app idea that I have now that I'm working around, it was kind of unique in that I didn't really find any competitors, which is either a very good thing or a very bad thing. It's like good because it's like, oh, I, maybe I have a new market. Bad because it's like nobody wants this. That's why it doesn't exist <laughs> yes, after you exactly, know, 15 exactly. years of the app store or whatever. So uh, we'll find out soon, I hope. But yeah, so I, you know, I look at that and what I do is I try to really keep it simple for myself because I'm someone who can go way into the weeds with all of this stuff. Like we, we hear about feature creep in terms of indie apps. Like, oh, it took so long to uh, get this out the door because I kept adding stuff. 
I can do feature creep on every step of the way if I don't keep myself in check. Like when I'm researching apps, I'm like, oh, you know what? I need a brand new template for this in Notion or Craft Docs or whatever. I'm like, oh, maybe I should share this with everyone. Oh, maybe this is a product actually, you know, so I, I have to really pump the brakes. And so what I do is I just I just pick three. Is there three competitors out there? Great. And then I just do three more things from each of them. Three good things, three bad things, three opportunities. And I just keep it as simple as that. Oh, that's awesome. I like that. That's super simple. Do you build like a landing page or anything to see if there's an audience out there? Yes and no. So I think about those a little bit differently. For the book series, I did do that. I, I got the landing page up first uh, and I got the email capture and I had like an internal metric. Like if 500 people sign up for this, th- then I'll do it. For apps, I don't really do that. I would try it. I'm not against it. I just haven't personally done it yet. So for the next app I'm working on, I'm kind of just going to go like the stealth app release. Like I'm just going to do it. I'm going to try like boots on the ground marketing stuff, uh, traditional social paid advertising to see what I can get going there. You know, it, it really depends on the app type. I mean, if it's something that's more indie friendly, you know, then, you know, Twitter is a great spot for that. But I kind of want to do this experiment where I just don't really tell anybody what I'm doing and then come back like six months later and say, all right, here's the app I shipped six months ago. I didn't even tweet about it. I did nothing. I just did traditional like, you know, acquis- user acquisition. And here's what happened. I always thought that would be a fun experiment because, you know, part of the fun with shipping apps is you share it on Twitter, the process and all that. And I love that. But this one, I'm just going to get something out the door as quick as I can and then just come back and say, here's what happened. Interesting. So for you, how do you decide what an MVP is? And like, as opposed to like, obviously, like you said, getting into feature creep, which we all are tempted to do when we're building Mm -hmm. an app. Yeah, it's another great question. It's something that I've learned more and more over the years is when you write down, like you have this document of of what this app's going to be, you have to take each bullet point that you add seriously, because if I create an MVP for an app and I put down like all these things and then I go and do those, you don't realize the weight of the time investment of those things until you actually start developing it. And so I don't really even add ideas that I don't think I'm going to do for version one, uh, even like that. I'll do this later because later may never come. You may not ship the app. You may be tired of it, maybe get bored whatever, you know, there's so many things that happen along the way of developing app that makes it drop off, you know, for good reasons and bad. So for me, again, just writing in my thought process, when I get the MVP of an app, it comes from the mission statement or the, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call that. I've heard a few different terms for it, but like the the stated purpose of the app, the elevator pitch, the one sentence. So like if my app does X, then those three feet, I'm going to pick out like maybe three features not even marquee features, three features or things that support that mission statement. And I'll write those down and that's what I'm going to work towards. Uh, All the other stuff that's great, it's going to come later. I don't even really write them down. I just uh, don't commit to anything else except those three things. And that's the only way I've really found that I can develop apps in a way that's actually going to ship, ways that's actually going to get them out the door. Otherwise, uh, it's going to be what happened with my app SpinStack, where I worked on it for like five years. And while that was fun and I have good memories of it, I don't want to do that again ever. I want to get things out the door quicker, test assumptions faster, and get people on board it a lot, lot faster than I have before. So if anything, I've learned to think more of like a true small business owner than an indie developer. Because in my world, when you think of indie developer, it's like, you're just kind of freewheeling, shipping stuff that you want to for fun. And this is me. I'm not saying this is what the scene is like. This is me. And, you know, you're just kind of for the love of the game, if you will. Whereas when I think of myself more as a small business uh, owner, I'm like, okay, so I actually have a product that I need to get out and ship to see if it's going to make any money. And if not, then at least for my stated purpose, then it's kind of wasting time. So it's okay to fail and it's okay to crater, but you're not going to know if you're going to crater, fail or succeed until something's actually on the app store for a little bit. 
Right, right, exactly. So I want to get a little bit into the weeds of the code. What are some Let's APIs you've been learning recently and applying in your apps? So this is going to be the most generic answer known to mankind, but it is the truthful answer. I've been leaning a lot more into SwiftUI recently. We've used it uh, at Buffer ever since it came out, and now it's to the point where it's our default uh, framework. So when we have new oh, features, interesting. We, yeah, we write them in SwiftUI. So. I know you got a widget, so I mean that you kind of have to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And one thing that we uh, are shipping soon that's this is just crazy impressive. This is one of those Swift UI moments where I was like, this is this is insane. We wanted to have a way for people to view the app before they committed to like sign up for it. And so we were like, what if we do this tour? Um, you know, uh, show people around the app. And so we literally rebuilt the whole UI of the entire app in Swift UI in like a week. <laughs> you know? This and is, so people I guess it'll be in the app store by the time this episode comes out. But yeah. Ish, maybe. Uh we're still like okay. you know tweaking some things but anyway so we rebuilt the whole app and it, and to be fair like there's little alerts that show when you click on something like hey this is what this would do um so it's not fully functional but it is the whole ui of the whole app okay gotcha. uh, that we built of the tour nice yeah that's pretty awesome yeah so it's i uh, that's say i'm getting a lot more comfortable with it i mean i've always known how to use it i could always build an app in it but i'm all about like polishing those rough edges which you know you can say whatever you want about swift ui some people say it's not possible to do that some people say it is all I know is what's possible for me. And I'm getting to the point where I can, I know enough about the uh, framework to kind of work around those things and, and polish things up. So yeah, I've been using SwiftUI heavily. And then for things where I really have hit personal performance limits with it, uh, kind of in scrolling and in lists and things like that, uh, I drop down to UIKit and uh, hey, UIKit's better than it ever has been. It's it's great, uh, especially when you tack on combine with it. So it, it's like a brand new world we're living in in a lot of ways in the last just two years of, of iOS. And it's really exciting. Right. But I know SwiftUI is the uh, hot answer right now. It's what everyone wants to learn. But it is the thing I'm leaning on most these days. And it's, uh, it's yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, though. So one of the things I wanted to ask you, you kind of brought up is, do you feel like as an employee at Buffer, your indie experience has helped you as an employee? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. The answer is a resounding yes. And the great thing about Buffer, and I get this question a lot, like, why why do you have a, a day job? I've been asked by friends and family that. I share numbers every now and then with the Best in Class book, but, you know, it did over 100,000 in like five months. So it's like enough to to support yourself and a family if you if you really wanted to. And the, the short answer is that Buffer supports me so much in side projects and my side projects support me so much in Buffer that as long as I have the bandwidth to do both, like I'm, I'm going to do both. Um, and not to get in a tangent about how much healthcare is in the United States, but that's another <laughs> big factor too. But yeah. Um, yeah, so Buffer started out as a side project with our CEO, Joel. He did what we mentioned earlier before it was in style. He put up this landing page uh, for Buffer, did the email capture, and you signed up, and it was like, hey, we're not ready yet, but we will be. And he was like the king of MVPs, so much so that one story that he told me one time, this was hilarious, because I never would have done this, which is why I don't have a $20 million a year business like he does, but he got Buffer out so quick that when people signed up, he would wake up the next day and flip a Boolean flag in like a MySQL database to say that they were a paid customer. So like they didn't even get it right away. Like he had to wake up and say that, oh yes, you know, like it has paid true. So he's got so much side project experience. It's insane. Um, Even on our work trips, we, before COVID had, uh, you know, annual retreats, 
And he would always sit down with me one-on-one and talk about side projects. I was like, hey, here's what I'm thinking with SpinStack. Uh, what do you think? He's like, well, here's how I would think about it. Here's how I would get it out. And hey, nice. I actually used it. Here's what I liked. Here's what kind of confused me. That's awesome. So it's a huge luxury. And it's like anyone who has a side project, this is like the dream job for it. Because I know not everyone gets that affordance. You know, like some jobs don't allow side projects. Some are like, yeah, you can do it, but be hush-hush. Buffer, we even have a channel in Slack that's like, show us what you're making. So uh, it really embraces that maker slash entrepreneur uh, side of people, and it encourages that. And so I take code and things that I learned from my indie stuff, and I put it in Buffer, and then and then vice versa. So SwiftUI is a perfect example. I mean, we just built all in, the whole app, like I said, in SwiftUI from a UI standpoint. And there are things that I learned in that process that are helping me with the app that I'm uh, baking in the oven right now. So it's it's very beneficial um, I get twice the learning with, you know, the same amount of time. So uh, as long as yeah. I can keep that train rolling, I will. That's awesome. Last time, one of the APIs, I don't know if we talked about it in the last episode you were on, but you used a considerable amount of CloudKit mm-hmm. in SpendStack, correct? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The whole syncing layer was all uh, CloudKit. How was your experience with that? And would you choose that again? Experience with it was great. What I choose it again is a longer winded answer. So we'll get to that one. So the experience, I think... So it is different now than when I started, but today you can have the NS persistent cloud core data store thing. I forget what it's even called. Right, right. You can do that, which is kind of like here, here's out of the box syncing. Or you can kind of use the open source layers for it or kind of roll your own. And by roll your own, I mean you use CloudKit, but you you build their APIs and uh, build off their APIs and make the syncing kind of on your own behalf. I did that route. And if I was using CloudKit today, it's the same thing I would do. I had complete control. There was no black box, no black box of syncing that you kind of get with the all-in-one solutions. You did your own syncing with Core Data. Yeah, I didn't use Core Data. It was a SQLite is what I used for. Okay, okay. But you did your own syncing between yeah, local so it, storage and Cloud Data. Got it. Yeah, so... It was great for seeking because I knew exactly what was going on and sharing was a little bit more complicated back then. You had to establish the relationships up front because you had a root record that had child records and then you wanted to share that root. Right. You know, it would trickle down and share everything else. All of that has been enhanced since then. But I think if you do CloudKit, that's just the way to go. It's so much easier to once you get the big ideas down, it's so much easier to know where things could be going wrong or what might be working, what might not be working if, if you're the one that wrote it. And there's really only a few core concepts with CloudKit. I know it's intimidating at first, but I mean, once you get the idea of, you know, record zones and the relationships and all those things squared away and how the subscriptions work, you're really off and running really quick. So I remember like the first time I got like a shared list working in SpinStack, it was this thing of like, is it really this simple? Like this was it? I mean, I just found like an obscure Apple sample code that was in the archive at the time. And that was it. That was all I needed. I just based it all off that. It's, it is hard to get going, but yeah, would I use it again? It's, it's hard to know because I would have to say what my goals are beyond syncing because as anyone knows who read my acquisition of SpinStack posts, like you're locked in with that developer count uh, once you turn on the CloudKit entitlement and you can't transfer the app out. And I know some people think that's way too forward thinking, but I mean, if your app, you know, does successful, it's, you know, pretty realistic that it could get acquired depending on if you want to move on to something else or um, you know, whatever the reason, reasons may be, it's never been more accessible to have your app acquired than it is today. So I don't know if I would use it again for that reason, because it means I would need a different developer account per app. But is it the best experience for syncing on the iOS platforms, which is something I really care about? I, I think, yeah, because you don't have to set up an account or any of that or run the server. It's just they have an Apple ID. They have, 
you know, cloud access, then there's your syncing layer. So I wish that stipulation wasn't in pace because then it would be an unabashed. Yes, I would use it every single time. Do you think that's a technical thing or do you think like what? What did you end up having to do, I guess? Yeah, so what ended up happening with SpinStack is they just bought my entire business. So Dreaming and Binary was the business that they bought, and its IP was SpinStack. So that's kind of how it had to go. From a legal standpoint, it didn't really make the acquisition trickier. It was just like, oh, okay, so we have to buy the whole thing. Like, I didn't say, hey, this is going to actually be more because I'm selling my business. It was like, no, SpinStack was the business. So for me, it was a one-to-one relationship there, so it made it a bit easier. But I think on Apple's side, it... I would imagine it's some technical limitation that ties these containers to developer accounts. I've heard of maybe some exceptions being made. I don't know if that's true or not, but they don't seem interested in changing it. And to me, the wins they would get from changing it are pretty high. But since they haven't, it must be kind of a high effort kind of a thing to do, uh, I would assume. So it's all speculation and conjecture on my end, but I would assume, yeah, some sort of technical hurdles are in place to make that easy for them to allow. Did you have other properties under your company that you had to also sell? Uh, yeah, but they were all dead in the water apps that had long been off the app store. And it was actually funny looking through those because there were some apps I forgot about from like 2011, 2012. A few of them that I had made that just, you know, did, did the typical my uh, friends and family downloaded it the first day. And then it was uh, off into the uh, app store void from there. So okay, technically, yeah. So there was more things that they got out of it, but wasn't anything that mattered. Nah, no. Okay. So what other, I guess we could, let's, if you don't mind, we could dive a little bit more into your experience selling your app. How did that work out and how did that go? Yeah. So, you know, it worked out well. It was kind of a whirlwind experience because I had first talked about getting the app acquired with uh, my wife, like, you know, because at this time, SpinStack was a big part of like our family. She knew I'd been working on it for so long um, and that it was important to me. But, you know, COVID had just st- started right around then and we were building a house and a lot was in flux with that. Like, I I don't know if you heard about, like, lumber prices during that time. Like, they were just yeah, going up. I'm dealing with it right insane. now, so trust me. Yeah, it, it was a trip, yeah. So I needed, like, a good injection of cash for me to feel really good about going forward with the house. And so I reached out to one uh, one of my friends, David Bernard, uh, who has experience in that area, had a few apps acquired, and kind of asked him, you know, his advice. And then at that same time, another party had reached out about getting it. And so... All at once, I had reached out, someone else had reached out, and then I got introduced to the third party who uh, ended up being the person that I went with to buy it. So I was kind of weighing these uh, different ways that I could go with it, and I ended up choosing the the route that I did and feel pretty good about it. And the interesting thing is it wasn't the one that had the uh, highest offer, but it was the one that I thought would, you know, kind of steward the app forward and bring it off into its next little stage of life. But it was a great experience to go through. I learned some things. There are things I'll do differently next time if, if I do sell another app. But it was uh, it was exciting, you know, uh, to, to actually see that number come through, which which was NDA'd, by the way. That's why I'm not saying it right here and now. I don't know if that's how all those deals usually go. But yeah, to see that, like, number yeah, shown and then, like, to see it in your bank account, it, it was, like, this proud moment of, like, something I just made from nothing just yeah, made that. me all this money. And, like, now I can go, you know, build this house for my family. So it was a huge, huge thing for me. It felt great, you know, and, uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. And I hope more people go through it, too. I think a lot of people in the tech world kind of assume, and I know I did, maybe I'm putting words in other people's mouth, but I thought this way, like, you know, acquisitions are only for like, you know, these huge SaaS companies, right? The big players, like these mega deals, like in the video game industry, like Microsoft just bought Activision Blizzard for like 70 billion. (laughs) 
But, you know, acquisitions happen all the time. And now there's even platforms for it. Uh, and the one that I'm thinking of really escapes. Oh, MicroAcquire. MicroAcquire is a big one now. There's Flippa, okay. of course. Um, I didn't use any of those, but it's like if you have an app that has users and makes money, like you could you could sell it. You probably could. So I think that's exciting for any developers because they can see a nice um, realization of cash on the thing they've worked so hard for if they're looking for new opportunities. Yeah. Is uh, David, David from Revenue Cap, I assume? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah I, I Which, who to better to ask, right? Than, right. Uh, right. Than David. Speaking of a startup things. with a great idea. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And he wrote a great post about it too. I don't remember if that was before or after um, we chat, but it, I know they have one on the Revenue Cap blog about like, hey, do you want to have your app acquired? Here's some things to think about. I will put a link to that in the show notes for sure. One question I wanted to ask, and I'm not sure, I wasn't sure about this. Do you, have you built apps for other platforms besides iOS? No, I haven't. I've been all right. iOS since I got started. And I, I mean, technically I did some stuff with Unity, but I never shipped them. But yeah, iOS has been like my, I, I've pigeonholed myself into iOS on purpose and I love it because now that I have, now I can actually do Mac OS, TV OS, you know, all, all the Apple OSs. But yeah, it's been all Apple for me. So have you tried it? Have you tried Mac OS? Tried a different platform? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yes, I have an. So this is funny. I'm. I have this little uh, group chat on iMessage with other indie dads. Uh, uh, Charlie's in there. Probably some other folks that you might recognize on Twitter. And I've had this macOS app like done for a long time. That's like basically a product management software for me. And they keep, you know, they're like, you need to ship that because I've shown little screenshots of it here and there. But yeah, so I've done quite a bit of macOS with. With that, I haven't touched it in a while because, you know, I just now started on another indie app, so I haven't really needed it. But I would say the one that I really haven't done anything in earnest would be tvOS. Everything else, I've done something that's like been a fully realized product. Uh, WatchOS, iPadOS, macOS, um, iOS. But yeah, tvOS is the only one I haven't really dabbled in. Hey, folks, I want to let you know about one of my favorite sponsors of the show, AppFigures. AppFigures is the leading platform for mobile app makers to track and grow their apps. It's packed with tools for reporting, optimization, and competitive intelligence. If you're making money with subscriptions, you need to know how to stay on top of those numbers, and AppFigures is definitely going to be the way to go. They have some great tutorials and articles at appfigures.com that you can check out to help you get started on what you can do to help optimize your app. They also have a really good YouTube channel you can check out where they do things like This Week in Apps, where Ariel gives you updates on what's going on with the App Store, as well as live keyword takedown, so you can see how your app maybe could best optimize what keywords it uses. It's really easy to integrate with your app, and it's really easy to get started. So go ahead, go to appfigures.com, and use the special code EMPOWER3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. There's no reason for you to just go ahead and give this a try. Again, EMPOWER3030, Go sign up and use the code and get 30% off for the next three months. If you're worried about things like core metrics or MRR or churn, they make it easy for you to understand what's happening, and that will give you more time to grow your subscription business. A lot of us are making money with subscriptions, so you definitely want to see what you can do to best optimize your app, and AppFigures is the way to go. Also, take some time. Check out the episode I did a few months ago with Ariel. He really knows his stuff, and he knows what he's doing. So you'll definitely want to check that episode out. Again, once you've checked that out, you got a good idea on what to do with the App Store, then use the special code so you can get the reports you need from AppFigures. Use the code EMPOWER3030, get 30% off. Thank you so much to AppFigures for sponsoring today's episode. 
All right. So I want to talk about your book. Books. Sure, let's do it. Sorry. No, it's all good. So you, you've actually blogged quite a bit, and now you have this book series out, Best best in App? Class. Uh, best in, best class, in class, iOS app. app. Thank you. So how do you think writing that book has helped you in your – how has that helped you put into words what you've been doing for the last, whatever, five years and help you refine your process? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, the short answer, it's helped a lot. I mean, for example, the first book I finished over accessibility was well over 300 pages. And the amount that I learned from writing that was was enormous, right? And there's a big, big need for it. Um, and one f- funny kind of example that I always give is uh, the rotor control and accessibility API was released for Swift UI either either in iOS 15 or 14. It was it was fairly recent. And it showed up in the infamous word cloud thing of like what's new during the keynote. And the tweets for it were like rotor control for Swift UI. Like, what is this? That sounds awesome. Which was kind of funny because I don't think people realized that it was an accessibility API. Like I think they thought it was some sort of UI control. And so like there's this big, you know, I don't want to say big gap of what people need to learn or don't know on accessibility. I don't think that's it because people are willing to learn. But the world is so big that you kind of, I had a lot of fun in learning how to kind of bring that down a bit and kind of distill it all into some easy to to understand examples and like chapters and things of that sort. So I would say I'm a much better accessibility programmer now than I was when I started. But in terms of like taking everything I've learned, it's been been a lot of fun. It's been very hard, a lot harder than I thought. I knew that once Spinstack was acquired that I wanted to kind of flip to the other end of things and do more writing because I had missed writing a ton. Uh, when I was working in Spinstack, I didn't have a lot of time to write. And now that I'm writing, I don't have a ton of time to work on an app. So it's certainly a trade-off. Um, but it was a now or never thing. I knew that if I started on another app, I was not going to do this book series. So I just kind of said, you know what? If there's a time to do it, it's definitely now when I'm in between apps. But it's it's fun, humbling, scary, all of those things. Because you're writing a book series that you're saying a best-in-class iOS app. So you're saying this is how to make the best apps possible. And there are expectations with that. And there should be because that's how I'm marketing it. But uh, it does put a lot of internal pressure on myself to deliver, you know, the the best possible, tangible, usable information that I can give you, right? Because I just don't want to write it to write it. I want to write it so you can take it and go, all right, here's something that I just read just now that maybe I could do a PR for, commit to my code base today to make the app better. So that's the goal with the book series. It does content updates about every two weeks, but my goodness, I think after this book series is done, I don't, th- I don't think I'll do another one. So a lot of late nights and juggling priorities for sure. But hey, people like it, and that's that's really good. I'm glad that they do. Yeah, I was just telling you, I looked over it last night, and I was super impressed. We'll get into the design part, but the accessibility part, like you have a lot in there in that first book. Yeah, how did you get? Did you were you always into accessibility, or was it something you're like, holy crap! Like I need to invest more time in this because I am not serving my audience very well by not having all these accessibility features in there. I think it was more about well, to answer like kind of where it came from. It, it the overarching goal was of the book was to cover everything. So what to me, what was everything? Everything was four main components: accessibility, design, user experience, and then of course the iOS APIs. And so I just started at that first one, but the the way that I found what to write on was kind of actually a funny story. I wrote a scraper for Apple's documentation and articles called the Daily iOS, which, which may or may not have seen. 
But the way I found like the contents of the book along the way was that I used that scraper and I found every single piece of documentation and every single piece of text written about accessibility from Apple. And so I made sure that every single one of those topics was going to be covered and every single one of those APIs would be in there. And then once I did that, I made sure that all of them were written in both Swift UI and UI kit where possible. Yeah, that was, I was really impressed with that, by the way, in the book, like you break down everything UI kit and Swift UI, which is super impressive. Uh, yeah. Even, even in this early of a, of a, where we're at with Swift UI to see all that accessibility stuff in there. Yeah, and and credit to Apple too. They've done an amazing job exposing those APIs. Uh, I go going back to the rotor control. How easy it is to do in Swift UI. It's almost criminal. Like it's almost to the point where if you don't have it, like you either forgot or just didn't didn't care. <laughs> you know, like it's just it's so easy to get in there. But yeah, so I've I've learned a lot that way, and of course that's why it's taking so long to write the dang thing because every code sample I have is effectively double and some things obviously take a lot longer in UI kit. But, you know, I think it's worth it because I want everyone to be able to take stuff from, from the book series, not just UI kit devs, not just Swift UI, but, but both because much like the early days of Swift and Objective C, there's both of those types of developers around and they're going to be around for a very, very long time. So it was kind of the only way I, that I saw going forward. But uh, it's also a big reason why I did early access, because I knew this book was going to take years to write. It's not a it's not a one year project. I'll have been working on it a year, I think, in May or August or something. So it's going to take a while um, and things are going to change along the way. But yeah, I mean, accessibility is is huge. Apple pushes it. I work at a place that allows us to take the time to develop it. And I think it's the highest impact area I can show people about now. Design is great. User experience is great. iOS APIs are great. But I just felt like accessibility was the right one to start with. If there was one thing you want people to take away from your first book in the series with accessibility, what do you want that to be? Yeah, I think it's empathy if I had to get one word. And, you know, it's it's easy to say in terms of accessibility, like, hey, it's the right thing to do. It's designed for everyone. And all those things are true. But, like, until you really stop to think about it and just put yourself in someone else's shoe, and I do write a little bit about this in the beginning or end, I can't remember. But, like, if you were blind, how would software be to you? What would it feel like? How What would the experience be like? What would the difference be like to you? And the difference between you being able to use an app and not being able to use the app, uh, an app could be voiceover or voice control or how well those APIs are implemented, if you use the right accessibility traits, all those things. So, like, I think the part of the reason accessibility is so hard to hammer home to some people or why it's maybe not as uh, implemented as well as we wish that it would is that you just haven't experienced the things that you're programming against, right? Like you may not have a motor disability. You might have great eyesight, right? You have all these things that make it to where you don't have to think about those APIs. But the people that need those APIs rely on them. Like, and, and you can't express that enough. Like they need them. It's not, it's not optional. Uh, they can use the app or they can't use the app if those things work. So it's just getting to the point where hopefully if I uh, posited my argument well enough in the book, you can look at yourself as an indie developer and say, you know what, I'm doing this because I want everyone to be able to use my app. Or if you work at a job and you need to kind of sell it, which 
I mean, that's just the truth of the matter. Sometimes you have to sell this work, even though if it's the right thing to do, uh, and even though you have all these arguments, you have to go to a PM or you have to go to your EM or you have to go to your boss and say, this is why I need time in the sprint to do it. Uh, I give some tips there too. Like, Hey, it's going to bring in more users. It's going to make us better than our competitors because just because it's the right thing, as we so often see in tech won't really get you far sometimes, unfortunately, but yeah, I mean, I, I hope it inspires people too to, to to work on those things and not be intimidated by the APIs. I mean, they may seem big or confusing at first, but they're really easy to use. It's just about knowing that they're there. That's like half the battle. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. All right, I want to get into the fun part. I want to talk about design. So, can I, I read this part of the book, but I'm going to ask anyways. <laughs> now go for it. Can you learn design? Yeah, so in that, I think that's a very interesting question. So not only is that a chapter in the book, but it was a blog post that I wrote years ago. And the reason that I wrote it that way and the reason I titled it as a question is that's something that I really thought myself because the first things that held Spinstack version one back and the reason why it didn't succeed, whereas the second one did, was design. The design was just, it was bad. It wasn't good. Um, it relied on gestures that weren't taught to people. The colors clashed. The contrast was crazy. It wasn't accessible. All these things. And it wasn't until I sat down and took design seriously, that Spinstack went to the next level. And so I kind of use myself as living proof in a way, and not that I'm some design maestro where I've figured it all out, but I'm tangible proof, like almost irrefutable proof, irrefutable proof that I didn't know anything about design, and then I took the same app and I designed it better. So like the whole point of the, that topic was to show that, yes, like it doesn't matter where you're at or what your discipline is. Like you can learn design. You can get better at it. You may not be an expert. You may not know color theory or typography. I mean, I still struggle with those things as well. But like you can learn components and you can learn just enough to get a lot better. Like there's a lot of bang for your buck when it comes to design. Once you get some of the principles down and you really see what Apple is teaching in the human interface guidelines, you can really kind of get moving and improve things right away. So can you learn design? Absolutely. One of the things you talk about, and I think it's interesting, I kind of agree with you why you shouldn't start with design. You want to explain that a bit? Yeah. Yeah. So it goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier on how like you need to know the what first, like you need to know what you're designing and who you're designing it for before you go into it. And, you know, I've got the scars from this one too. I've, I've got an excited about an app idea early on in my career and I just went for it. You know, Xcode's open. I'm banging away at the keyboard already. And then at that point, I don't even really know like exactly what the app is doing or who it is for or, or any of that. And again, if it's just for uh, the love of the game type of thing and you just want to get that creative energy out, by all means, you know, you should do that. But for me, one of the lessons that I've always taken away from my projects is unless I define the what, unless I get this huge word cloud of ideas down and whittle it down into a few things, my design or my idea of what it should be is just going to be too obtuse, right? It's just a bit too abstract to get something tangible out the door. So when you kind of stop and uh, pump the brakes a little bit, it kind of can kill that excitement, right? And you don't want that to happen. You want to get to that creative stuff to keep that going, but you've got to have a foundation first. So I think it's all about laying that foundation down and then designing for that foundation uh, because you don't want to stop yourself and you don't want that creative energy to go away. Uh, but it will be wasted, in my opinion, in my experience, if you do, at least don't know what it is you're trying to go for, more or less. So what, what are some ideas you have about like building that foundation, I guess? Yeah. So the first thing for me is it all starts with like the elevator pitch. Like if I can't describe the app in one sentence, then, then I'm in trouble. And it almost kind of goes to the reason why the app store has, I think it's a 60 character subtitle limit. 
So, and I think that's great because it kind of shows, can you explain this very quickly? Can you get the main idea across? And so when you do that, then you can kind of start building up from there. So that, like, if you're building a house, that's like your framing. That's your foundation right there is the app's mission statement, that elevator pitch, the one sentence, maybe two of what it's going to do. And then from there, you start putting on the su- support beams, as it were, of what supports that foundation, you know? So if I'm making this app that's, you know, about, you know, recording podcasts like uh, this Riverside app that we're using right now. It's like, you know, okay, so what's it going to do? Okay, I've got the main idea. What what makes it different? Then you kind of start peeling back the layers. Like, is there enough there for me to improve upon what's already out there? Do I have enough interesting things to say about it to, to make it better? And so, yeah, you kind of get the big idea and you build it up and you make it stronger and stronger. It's like you're presenting a case to, you know, a court and jury or something. It's like you're, you're getting all these facts together. You're kind of gathering them up. And then it's like, bam, now I've got something that's a bit real and I can start the design process from there. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Because like you said, like if you don't have an audience and if you can't explain it in one sentence, you you have a problem. You're trying to do something way too complicated, uh, yeah, at least absolutely. for an MVP anyways. Yeah. Hey, folks, I wanted to thank a sponsor of today's episode, Sentry. Sentry is the way to track errors and understand performance issues in your app. It's super easy to integrate. They have a Swift package as well as CocoaPod and other ways you can integrate their tool set into your app. If you want to know why your app is crashing or whether there's certain edge cases that happen, Sentry is definitely the way to go. Simply go to Sentry.io today and check out their tool set and sign up. It's really easy to get started and it's the way I'm tracking errors and understanding what's going on. They have a great team that will support you and help you get started. So go to the link in the show notes below and try Sentry today. Thank you again to Sentry for sponsoring today's episode. One of the things you talked about, and I love this, was the difference between a high fidelity and a low fidelity design. I think I am probably leaning towards low fidelity myself. Same. Um, and we can explain that. We can explain that a little bit further, but part of it is one of the issues like designers have, especially people who aren't familiar with iOS, is they'll design an app because like they design a web page, right? And they just think everything's gonna be custom. We're gonna do custom this, custom nav bar, you know, everything that they like, they don't have an idea of what's like A, what's easy to do, and B, what's like typical on the Apple platform. Whereas with like a low fidelity design, I'm restricted by programming within that framework. And then if I need to customize things further, I can do that myself if I feel like there's a need for that. Where do you stand and maybe explain like the pros and cons of each? Yeah. So to kind of define them, uh, in my terms, I explain high fidelity as like the picturesque golden path. Everything's designed in like sketch or Figma. Like you've got the whole blueprint there. Whereas the low fidelity is just like you're sketching something on paper or using procreate or some kind of tool to just kind of get the wireframes out. And so I kind of think of those as two viable options, and I think they both have their places, but I do think it's going to be different for everybody. So that's kind of where I kind of split from other design texts out there. Some kind of take you one way or the other and say, this is the next step. Whereas for me, it's like, I may not need a full on sketch canvas of everything to get going. Right. Um, if it's just me, I don't. And there's a lot of reasons. One, I'm not really that talented in those programs. I'm not going to make something that looks great. Even if you gave me an app, and told me to make that in, in sketch. Like if you did the reverse, my sketch one would still be worse. Cause like, I'm just not that I'm great the same at boat. using those. Like yeah, I've yeah. downloaded those iOS like libraries from Apple uh-huh. for sketch. And I'm like, 
all right, I'm going to do this. And I'm like, but why can't I do this? Why can't I put uh. this toolbar there? <laughs> it's so much easier in Swift UI. It's like, yep. yeah. No, you're, you're completely right. And, and it kind of goes to, to your experience and your biases. You know, designers are probably geared for that. Like, that's their Xcode, right? They're great at that. Uh, so they may go that path. But for a lot of developers, I kind of wanted to encourage and let them know that, like, you don't need that whole thing. What you need is uh, the flow kind of nailed down and where the app's going to go and, and a lightweight kind of blueprint of how it's going to work. So funny enough, where I fall on that, I should have added this to the book and I might in an update. But I kind of uh, land in, like, mid fidelity so like i have high and i have low like i'll make a sketch file but it's not gonna look picturesque it's just gonna mm. kind of have right. like the color palette and how i want you're, and you're probably a little bit forgiving forgiving towards yourself for what you actually oh, absolutely. put in the app where it's yeah. like yeah okay i didn't get this exact color but close enough like or i didn't get this pixel perfect because it looks different on this phone as opposed to that phone yeah okay and i think high fidelity is really great for typography so like if you want to know how dynamic type's gonna look you know, you can do that really easily. And uh, Apple's UI kit kind of helps with that. But, you know, you, you got to be really forgiving of yourself at that stage and kind of know your limitations. And like even my uh, sketches that I put in the book, uh, like that's actually what I use. Like I didn't really almost do that for example's sake, just for the example. I was trying to show like this is actually like good enough for me. And this is how I made SpinStack, right? Like I just had some wireframes. Things aren't even lined up perfectly, but it, it, it's enough for me to get started and start developing. So you really kind of have this uh, fork in the road path in your development journey where you kind of know, I think, even when you get there, which way you're going to go. But I do uh, encourage people to try both because you learn things along the way from either path that you can take to one or the other. Yeah, I, I really wish I was better at Sketch and, like, using those app design. Like, the uh, what's it called? Like, the library that you can get from Apple. Yeah. Like, the, the little things. And I, I just have, bonus. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just have such a hard time with it where I'm just like, oh, like, I just want to open up a Swift UI file and work on live previews. Yeah, yeah. Like, you get into the symbols and all that stuff. And you're like, oh, wait, right, I, right. I'm detaching this. Am I breaking something? So, you know, it's mm-hmm. and it's, yeah. it's so fun to talk about because it's really, it's just not really our world, right? Like if you start as a developer primarily. Mm-hmm. So like, it's this other discipline that you kind of have to learn and design certainly is a brand new discipline. And that's just one of the tools that comes with it. So yeah, that's why you should give yourself a break. And if that's not the way for you to go, just make sure that you do put a lot of thought into that process. But, you know, if it's, if it's drawing on a pen and paper, then cool, do it. One of the things you talk about uh, in the book that I hadn't thought of is tone. What do you mean by tone exactly? Are you talking like tone in your wording and design or tone in how you're marketing the app? Or what do you mean? And what are some examples of differences, I guess? Yeah, so tone is such a fun one. I love thinking about it. So the way I explain it is like you're, you're kind of finding your app's voice and your app's voice isn't just like the text or the copy. It's like the whole feel and experience of the app all the way down from the marketing, the land page, the colors, the app store uh, descriptions and screenshots, of the app. So the reason it pays to think about all those things is you want to be consistent there and you don't really want to mix and match tones. And so the way that I kind of went about it is I said, hey, here's what tone is. Here's how it shows up in apps. Here's where you see it. Even if you don't realize you're seeing it, here's how you can affect it. Now let's look at some examples so you can really see like what I mean by this. And so like you have like the casual tone, which you can think of Apple for that, right? They have the biggest user pool on the planet, right? Well, I mean, Android, I guess, technically has more installs, but the point still stands like a billion people use calendar, for example. So how do you design calendar for like every person on the planet? 
Well, you can't be really too opinionated in your tone. It has to be open and, and inviting for everyone to kind of get in there and get a feel for it. Whereas if you look at other players in the market, they may have a more different tone. So like Fantastical, maybe more power user, right? Because if someone goes and looks for a different calendar in the App Store, they've probably tried the stock one and thought, this isn't for me. I need something more powerful. Right. Yep. So they can you know, cater to those people a bit more. And then one of my favorite examples is, uh, of course, uh, Christian Selig's Apollo. He has one of the most unique tones I've ever seen in an app where the tone is almost literally him. It's not Reddit. Like, you feel like you're friends with Christian when you use Apollo. Like, right. his error yeah. message is really like, oh, crap, you know, like I screwed this up or something like that. But <laughs> it's endearing, right? And people love it for that. And they just feel like you're sitting down, hanging out with Christian, browsing Reddit. Uh, and that's his tone, and it works really well. So it's like you can look at all those examples and figure out the right one for you and for your app. And when you stick to it and make it consistent, it really helps you make a lot of decisions, and it helps you do the one thing you don't want to do, which is mix and match tones, because that's really off putting in can be really confusing and when you see it in apps you know it like if you get an error message in an all business app that's like ah oh, shucks you're like shucks like are we buddies now like what is this invoicing app this is weird it's like the fast food corporate twitter thing where they're like being all sarcastic that's been a thing yeah. for like the last yeah. whatever half decade where they uh-huh. hire some some kid to do it and it's like it's yep. funny at first but now it's like it's not funny anymore because everybody does it yeah, uh, it's like my yeah. rib is making jokes at me like this. I don't know what's going going on yeah, here. You yeah, know? exactly. So before, was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we close out? Uh, yeah, hey, this was a this was a ton of fun. I didn't have anything in particular. Just always happy to answer questions. And uh, this is all the stuff I love talking about, you know, design, apps, indie stuff. Uh, it's always it's always a pleasure. So I'll ask one last question. Yeah, do it. Before we close out, what is the number one thing you think devs should know about marketing their app? And that that's. Yeah, that they should do it, actually, you know, because when you're getting your first app out the door, you have this kind of dream that like, I'm going to get this on the app store. It's going to shoot up. I'm going to get downloads. Uh, And it's a valuable lesson to learn if you've done that. Um, And this is all from experience. I'm not saying this is what every developer does on their first app. But marketing doesn't just happen. And you can't really learn from the people that have had that experience. Because it's not really repeatable. They don't really have a framework. It was a flash in the pan. It was a stroke of luck. Uh, Not that they're not talented, but it's just like something happened that's not normal. So like you need to think about things that you can do that are repeatable, that are like actionable and things that you can learn. So just marketing is a big topic, but just think about it at least. Like when my app's out there, put yourself in other people's shoes. How would I ever find your app? And if I did find it, is the, the screenshots you've given me, the descriptions you've written, do they make me actually want to try it? Do they make me want to download it? Right, right. All of those things matter because one of the things that happens with developers is we're great at writing software. We solve all these brilliant technical challenges, and then we spend five minutes on the app store marketing. So it's like you, if you bought a business, like if you were opening a clothing shop, it's like you have the best products in the world, but it's all in the back and it, you just have the tiny open sign that you don't even have the name of the store. It's like no one's coming in, you know, no one's going to buy it. It's not that your product isn't good. It's just that people don't understand it. They don't know about it. You haven't sold it to them. So, you know, be be ready to try and sell your app. Enjoy that first rush of downloads if you get it from a nice launch. And I hope that everyone does. But there's life after that. And that's where you're going to spend the majority of your uh, lifespan of, of indie life is in that next section of uh, trying to get things uh, in people's hands with your app and trying to figure out ways to do that. So think about marketing. It's not scary. It's something you can learn. Be ready to spend some of your proceeds on it even, you know, really, really try and think about it critically and realistically. 
And I would say, like, marketing and developing should go, like, hand in hand. I wouldn't wait until you have it in the app store to market the app. I would even do it <laughs> yes. sooner if you can. Yes. And, and you know, the good thing with marketing is it's never too late to start. So, like, even if you did have it out in the app store and you didn't tell a soul, hey, you know what? You can start marketing it today. So you can always get going with it. Yeah, agreed. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been fantastic to have you on again. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, my, my virtual door is always open. Where can people find you online? Yeah, so uh, Twitter at Jordan Morgan Ten. My website, where I'm starting to trying to write weekly, do a lot better job of that. Is Swift Objective C, Swift and Objective C mashed together, and of course the book series you can find at bestinclassiosapp.com. Thank you so much. People can find me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion. My company is Break Digit. Please take some time to like and subscribe if you're watching this on YouTube or post a review on uh, Apple Podcast, Google, Spotify, wherever you're listening. Thank you so much for joining us. And I look forward to talking to you again. Bye.